Don't make, we're gonna, we gotta talk about what you wanna talk about, cause you're opening the floodgates over here. Oh yeah? Of things I both wanna talk about and complain about. You know, I, I wish that Steery would just stop listening to me. I'm not talking to you. As I keep talking and it's like, just keeps going longer. Like the sentence that I'm supposedly saying to it. Stop. Uh, first thing first, a little bit of follow-up from last week. Uh, I mentioned we were having our big contest uh, on the weekend, 48 hours of operating remote from our station in Maine. And uh, it went great for 24 hours. <laughs> but? And then, and then uh, the power went out. Which is normally not a problem because we actually have, uh, you know, uh, Generac generators at the station. They kicked in, power came back, but the cable internet did not come back. And eventually the power came back quickly, but then the internet did not come back for from about 8 p.m. till about 2 a.m. Which, you know, when you're, when every minute counts, uh, you know, when you lose a good six or eight hours there in the middle of the contest, it's just kind of a... You're just kind of screwed, you know, it's not competitive at that point. So we basically just bailed after that, but we still submitted our score. Uh, and in fact, even though we only operated 22 hours or something, we still, you know, beat lots of people, right? <laughs> it's too bad, you know, we weren't able to fully uh, be competitive in the contest, but, you know, it's just another stepping stone to kind of prove that the, the, to prove that the technology works. And that, uh, you know, technically everything came together except for the internet access. You know, that was that's the kind of one downside you have of operating remote. You know, that's your one kind of lifeline into into the station. And uh, losing power is one thing, but losing internet is just a whole other can of worms. So nothing, nothing we can do about that. You know, it's just cable internet, ISP. I don't know if we have the ability to get fiber where we are. You know, that would be the ideal situation. Uh, or uh, Starlink, you know. Knock on wood, we can get some Starlink beta access. Uh, where our stations are up in Maine, we're actually above the latitude where they're going to start doing Starlink beta soon. So uh, we entered into that and super hope that we can start beta testing Starlink with our stations because I think the low latency and bandwidth, I think it's just going to be awesome. Is Starlink as like going? So I've had satellite in the past and it was pretty uh, temperamental. Like a storm would roll through, boom, lose. Super cloud, like rain, like lots of rain, boom. So here's the deal with Starlink. All satellite internet up to this point has used geostationary satellites. And hand waving, because of physics, geostationary satellites have to be really friggin' far away, right? Um, in order to maintain an orbit such that they are always above the same point on the Earth, they have to be really far out. Like probably, I don't know, a thousand times further than low Earth orbit, like where the ISS is and stuff. Uh, I don't know the exact orders of magnitude there, but Starlink is different because it's a constellation of hundreds or thousands of low Earth orbiting satellites. They're much closer to Earth. The latencies are going to be way better because you don't have that, you know, delay due to the speed of light. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know about the frequencies because the thing about the rain is that that you know the the frequencies they use are attenuated by by precipitation. Um, so I'm not actually sure about how that's going to affect it, but the latency and bandwidth is going to be much better because there's just going to be always multiple satellites in view and they're really really close to Earth, which is just uh, you know a big boon compared to geosynchronous satellites. So that's my understanding of it, at least. That's um... <laughs> did I did I sufficiently answer that question? I guess, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I guess like if 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 those issues are solved, then that that's cool. I I don't know. It's I guess it's one of those things where the contest is cool and it would be cool to participate in it, but everyone's still alive at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's totally a first world problem. <laughs> I'm not saying it's just a. Yeah, because I think about that. I think about that a lot too with with myself. Like, you know, I have fiber internet and I work online and and all that stuff, but. I yeah I've had internet like like a uh, satellite internet before but it sounds like this this Starlink stuff's a whole different ball game. Yeah, it is. I think it's going to be a real game changer, and especially if it's affordable, like it's going to be awesome. Especially for us because we just you know we can it gives us the ability to put stuff in really rural, good radio locations are typically not good internet locations, right? That's a that's a boolean that like barely overlaps, right? Yeah, so. Anyway, so that's that's with that. Um, the logger stood up fine and held up fine, so that's good. And um, you know, we've got another one coming up in um, another month or two, and we'll try it again. So it'll be good. Yeah, I'm sure you guys will do great on that one. Not being sarcastic because that sounded sarcastic. <laughs> I mean, you're setting world records, you know. I'm sure you're going to do great. Actually, uh, I will say, <laughs> in one of the contests, they actually used my call sign, but I didn't participate in the contest. And so now I actually hold a USA record in one of the contests because even I didn't operate it. Like a plaque's going to show up at my door one of these days in the mail and I'm just going to, I don't know, put it on my wall. That's pretty cool. (laughs) That's pretty exciting. World record holding uh, host of the show. So what's up with all the screenshots you were sending me today? Yeah, so the other thing I've been working on is... uh, Every day is Refactor Friday this week. <laughs> um, so during our little company powwow a couple weeks ago, uh, when we went up to Maine to do all the hardware prep for this contest, we spent a lot of time in during the six-hour drive talking about how we want to improve the service. Right, We kind of had a company meeting in the Dodge Ram. We've talked about this for years. It's just never come to fruition. It's just revamping our billing process. I won't get into details of it now, but basically we need to sort of get on board with like a more modern sort of subscription-based model. That's, you know, it's really easy. You just either put in your credit card or PayPal and just kind of, it's just a lot easier than, you know, sending an invoice and having someone pay an invoice and using fresh books and tracking them down and so on and so forth. And so what this comes down to is uh, we need some new features in our web app. I initially was going to try to do this in Phoenix, but none of our like public facing actual rendered web pages are in Phoenix right now. And I didn't want to, that's just like too much changing at once, right? So uh, Rails it is, right? We've got this Rails app. It's been stood up for years now. As I mentioned before, it hasn't been touched in a while. Finally took time to take the deep dive this week and figure out what the heck is going on in there because it is a mess. Royal mess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as you know, as any project that's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. seven years old is going to be, right? So I've been refactoring Rails applications um a couple things i was able to delete a bunch of just stuff that just kind of like dead ends that never went anywhere i was going to write our console in react and that was all served up through the rails application that is all gone that was 100 javascript files gone it's kind of felt good but also like oh my god i wasted all this time writing all these components that are literally just evaporating but you know it is what it is yeah and then and so that React console actually ended up being a view console later on. And I also deleted 
I tried to write like a, a WebSocket server that had like message handling and this extensible architecture with endpoints and processes and message queues and, and Redis and backend and all this stuff. And that just all went out the window because I just used Phoenix, <laughs> you know, and Phoenix had this great distributed architecture that I could just build upon and it was fast and it worked great and it handled WebSockets great. So that pure Ruby custom solution, gone. 250 files deleted later. <laughs> now it's time to start actually doing some refactoring. <sighs> Let me talk about Trailblazer. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> I really bought into the Trailblazer ecosystem when it was still very early on, you know, like pre 1.0. Um, I bought his book PDF. I read through it. I I drank the Kool-Aid. I was like, this is great. This solves all my problems that I have. Started refactoring a bunch of stuff into Trailblazer and then found out Trailblazer promised to reduce all this like kind of boilerplate really ended up creating more boilerplate than it replaced. You know what I mean? Like a lot of weird syntax, weird conventions, kind of pigeonholes you in a corner and how you design things, forces you to sort of over-engineer solutions that don't require over-engineering. You know what I mean? It's kind of designed for like the the 10% case where you've got really complicated updates and operations and side effects and you kind of want to sort of manage contracts you know they call them contracts to so think of them as like form objects or something right like they have this all this architecture built around just like running some code just running a function and guess what sean they're just functions well they're just methods in ruby but uh, <laughs> and so yeah i ended up just uh taking what i could out of trailblazer and just making it into sort of a more phoenix driven contextual domain-driven design model. So I'm looking at Trailblazer in a nutshell on the, the GitHub repo. It says, all business logic is encapsulated in operations or what some people might call service objects. Mm -hmm. Controllers instantly delegate to an operation. No business coding controllers, only HTTP-specific logic. Models are persistence only and solely defined associations and no scopes, okay? No business code is to be found here. No validations, no callbacks. Also interesting. Um, the presentation layer offers optional view models called cells mm -hmm. and representers for document APIs, uh, more complex business flows and life cycles are modeled using workflows. Okay. So I'm on board with like the first three. I, I, I'm following those. I think I follow number four with like the view model, right? I don't know why they call them cells, but uh, I think I'm following at this point. Yeah. And like the, the thing I liked about it was that the, the, all those concepts are great. Like they're great ideas. You know, they're, they're solutions to shortcomings that Rails has, you know, Instead of having a bunch of logic in your controllers, uh, just delegate it to an actual thing that's dedicated just to performing your business logic. And, you know, like you said, just let the controller perform the HTTP-specific operations. Guess what? You don't need an entire class just for every single operation you want to perform. Like, that can be nice if you've got a really complex workflow, but uh, you can also just call function, you know, <laughs> and it's fine. This is, it reminds me of Phoenix in a way, right? So your operations would be your context? No, 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 no. Your operations are each individual controller action. All business logic is encapsulated in operations? Yeah, so a, an operation is a class that has a single entry point that runs some logic and then exits. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? You have a class for every single operation. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't like that. Right, right. Too much, too much. I'm off the train already. I'm off it. <laughs> exactly.
And like again, their idea. So what they do is they have these sort of uh, they call them contracts. They're kind of like form objects, right? You pass in a validated set of parameters, right? And so they do validation sort of at that point mm-hmm. instead of validating at the model level. Uh, they validate sort of at the operation level. So before you even get into the code, you do the validations and, and typecasting and all that stuff from the from the unsafe, scary world of the web into your application. Okay, and I think that makes sense too. But like again, for certain applications you know if i'm building admin backend uh i'm just going to go straight to the model and just just blast attributes into it and use you know permitted uh attributes and it's going to be fine you know well that's one i mean well that's one one interesting thing i guess i've been noticing so clicking around looking at uh node-based web frameworks many of them allow you to pass in like a json schema object that sort of performs the endpoint validation for you so you can define here's the parameters that i require here's what any body that's being sent to me has to look like um etc right i'm trying to think like other places you can like put that together but it doesn't feel like it's sort of a first class assistant in a way um that i've seen in, in a lot of these node frameworks i guess i don't really have a point to, to make there uh it's just something that i noticed i don't want to get too much into trashing on trailblazer but uh, basically what I found is that I'm kind of leaning towards, instead of just having everything be uniform, have the complexity of your architecture scale to the complexity of the operation. It's nice to have everything the same, but it doesn't make sense when some things are very simple and th- some things are very difficult. Like, those are different problems that you're solving on a, you know, controller by controller basis, basically. Okay, yeah. I I, th- I have to be okay with the level of um i don't know boilerplate hand holding whatever it is like the complexity of all the setup required to do the thing should be proportional to the complexity of the thing that is happening right why do i have to go through all this rigmarole just to you know update a row in a database mm-hmm. like that's that seems you know that that's against what rails is trying to do first of all which you know that's always <laughs> a bad thing right trying to skirt around rails conventions uh, but also, it's just uh, it's just a lot of mental overhead. It's just a lot of code overhead. It's just a lot of just more stuff to change, more files, more stuff you have to understand and get into just to get in there and make changes to the code. And so, maybe maybe the application is not complex enough to require these kind of conventions that Trailblazer provides. But uh, you know, that that means I just it's just okay, I'm just roll my own thing. And so that makes sense. So so I yeah I feel. Like DK was like that a lot. So so Phoenix sort of only pushes you into some very light rules around here's where your business logic goes, here's where your data layer is, here's where your HTTP layer is. It completely separates them, right? And and that's about it. You can you can structure things however you want to. You could do multi operations in a in a controller via Ecto Multi or something. You know you can you can do whatever you want. Um, there, there's not a lot of red tape to to walk through, and that was really nice in some ways because, like you said, if if something's really complex, I might spend more time putting in that red tape. The red tape is there for a reason, but that doesn't mean that the side door needs to have a red tape on it. Mm-hmm, Sometimes mm-hmm. the side door, you just need to get it out there so you can solve whatever problems you're facing at the time. Like authentication, for example, right? You're building an admin backend. Uh, it might just be as simple as checking, hey, is this user in the admin role? Okay, then just allow them to do everything, right? You know, let, let them view the controllers, let them do everything. You don't have to have all these complex uh, permissions, checks, and, per, you know, rules and DSLs built into there. 
Uh, maybe when you get to the user facing end and you've got feature flags and different levels of service, you know, and different user account types. Okay. Yeah. Maybe then you get a little more granular, but like no, no reason to, to, you know, shoot yourself in the foot and add all this stuff ahead of time just because just to make it homogenous. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you think there's some sort of sweet spot of productivity in there? Because to, to a point, like you're using rails presumably because a, you know it, but B, it allows you to be productive, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably the most important thing is the, the enabling of productivity for you. And Mm -hmm. so it does so much. There's conventions you can follow. You can break from them if you want to at your own risk. Right. So that gives you, that gives you that productivity. And then if you keep going on, adding more layers of red tape, more layers of abstractions, more organization in a sense, uh, presumably then your productivity will decrease because then you have more hoops to jump through uh, when uh, making changes. I get a good case in point, if anyone's been listening to the show for a while with DK, you know, I started splitting out the ecto schemas from being in one namespace, one directory. Uh, every domain I had, whether it was stores, products, whatever, each redefined the product schema. So products.product, stores.product, uh, reporting.product or something like that. So that way there was no interweaving between the context, right? So when I started doing that, yeah, it was neat. Yeah, like oh, the, the, the reporting.products only knew whatever columns were mapped to it specifically in Ecto, which is was nice. But man, it really sucked to maintain, (laughs) you know, like making changes to the database involved me touching like all these different domains. And uh, I ended up moving it back into just one namespace. And it still is that way today. It's still running in production that way. And it was great to work with. So I think like there's there's like this peak productivity in we have enough convention to make you productive, but not enough to to keep you from moving quickly. And then you start going down the other side once you add more red tape and and um, uh, processes or protocols or whatever. I don't think that going against the convention is ever going to be a net win. You know, I would say that maybe following the convention up to a point is going to be the best thing to do. But having the sort of, I don't know, recognizing when the convention is not enough and then wrapping it up in the layers that you need to as appropriate, that's, that's going to be the big win. You know, for example, this feature I'm going to be tackling is billing, right? Billing is hard. It's scary. It's dangerous. Like you want to get it right. Mm. And there's a lot of edge cases. You want to make sure you handle all the errors. Like if you, if you make a mistake, uh, you're going to hear about it, right? So uh, this is a thing that like, okay, yeah, I, I want to like build out my models and stuff and, and uh, use active record and use all those built-in validations and just use Postgres to maintain refer- referential integrity. Like all those building blocks are great. The actual billing transactions, like that's going to be its own thing, right? That's going to be, that's going to be its own service object or whatever, just because like, I know that that's going to be complex and you know, I need it to be testable in a certain way and, you know, be able to swap out different payment processors and yada, yada, right? You go down that whole road. So like, that's the thing where like, I know ahead of time that uh, Rails conventions are not going to be sufficient to give me the confidence that I need to build that feature out. So that's where I'm going to not break out of the convention. I'm still going to, you know, use everything that Rails provides, but just add, add another layer on top of it. I think that's where I've been trying to find my home in, in Node, so to speak, right? Because there are other things like um, 
say Nest. I think like Nest JS, even though it's you know TypeScript, so I guess Nest Nest N E S T T S. Wait, 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 what is Nest? Here, let me let me get you the link. Dot com is what we want. Yes, it's a progressive Node.js framework for building efficient, reliable, and scalable server-side applications. That's what it says on the tin. Um, it's it's a it's it's big. You know, it's the the aim of Nest is building um big services. You know, big APIs, com- complicated APIs, and I don't have. It, it's complicated, right? It uses decorators a lot. It's it has all these 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 concepts. It's a big piece. It's a big thing to learn, right? So it'd be like learning Laravel or learning Rails. It's like there's a lot of it. I don't need all that stuff for for what I'm doing. And and, and then so then I go the other way. Express. Okay, well, it hardly does anything, which is nice. Like you could piece it together, but then you're doing all the you're doing all the uh, glue code, you know. So that's kind of where I've been looking for a home in finding just enough convention to make me feel productive while not being uh, slowed down by dragging an entire framework with me. And there are not, there's nice solutions out here, right? So I'm working on rebuild, rebuilding Rodinia with my buddy, uh, Nabil. I'm doing the API. He's doing the front end. Um, so, you know, I'm using Fastify, which is fine. And I'm using Prisma, which is also fine. And together they get me pretty far, but uh, like, like this past week, I've been getting the test, uh, strategy set up, like figuring out how I want to test this. How do I test Prisma? How do I glue it together with, uh, Fastify? And I find myself <laughs> this last week, I start looking at test frameworks. Okay. What am I going to use? Jest, AVA. What am I use? Mocha? Chai? What am I using here? Uh, super, te- like super test. What am I using? You're just using nonsense words at this point. There's so many frameworks, you know? So I picked Jest because it seems to be the biggest one right now. Everyone's using Jest. We use it at work. We use it at MetaLab. That's a good metric. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, let's go with Jest. We're going with that. And so I picked Jest. I'm like, okay, so how do I... Okay, so if we have this Jest and I need to I need to figure out how to set up and tear down my database uh, so I can actually, you know, test against a test database and not my development database... <laughs> Because the first tests I wrote, just to have something, were running against my development database. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I actually have the code sitting right here. So my first pass at this was basically in Jest, you can configure, like, set up and tear down globally. And so that way you can do before all, uh, run the database migrations, make sure the test database is up. So that means I have to have a separate environment variable from a test DB, separate test configuration, right? Then I need to actually run the migrations, and then I need to make sure that it didn't blow up and handle any errors there. <laughs> then what I need to do is create a new connection to the client and then make that globally available uh, so I can do like seeds or something, right? Um, and then I have to handle tearing it down. So then I, I have to like, you know, wipe the database, close all the connections, and, and do all that. So that wasn't a terrible amount of work, but it was. I still had to do it, right? And then I had to figure out, okay, well, if I have multiple tests here, and I'm using seeds, how do I wipe the seeds in between each run so that way, you know, we're not cross-pollinating this thing? Because I don't want all my 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 stuff to just be tossing rows in the database and breaking my test, right? It's non I don't want it to be non-deterministic. Um, so then I'm like, okay, well, I could just drop and recreate the database between each test. It, well, for a framework, it sounds like these are all things that should be built into the framework, no? Uh, well, well there, there's no framework. That's what I'm saying. Uh, okay. Prisma is your HTTP layer. Uh, that's it. 
or not Prisma, sorry, Fastify is your CPU layer. Prisma is your, your DB layer. So you have to glue them together and then you have to glue together like Jest. Okay, so Jest is your testing strategy. So now you have to like make it aware of uh, Fastify and Prisma and make those available. So, Oh, so Jest is just a generic testing firm because it doesn't know anything about the database. That's right. Yeah. So I was talking, I just mentioned like we could just delete the database and recreate it on every test, but my God, that would be so slow. And so I stumbled across a clever uh, pattern where what people do is they they create the connection uh, before all, so it only happens once, and they tear it down after all, so it only happens once. But before each test, what it does is it creates a new, it uses a new uh, GUID. And uh, so basically you just create a new schema. So instead of like postgres.public, you have postgres.test underscore some GUID. And so that way... Um, you don't have to tear down the database every time. You just have a bunch of different schemas that are sort of isolated. So that's faster than like deleting everything every time, but it's still not fast. So we're talking like I have five endpoint tests that, uh, you know, the test runs, it creates some records. I uh, make that request to the endpoint and then I assert that the data coming back is what I want it to be. So we have five tests right now and that takes about five seconds to run. Uh, yeah. Okay. So when we're in, and this is what I'm getting at. So yes, I'm learning TypeScript because, uh, it's good for my job. You know, it's, I feel like JavaScript is something where you, you invest time into it and it's sort of always useful in the future, unless you just totally walk away from front end altogether, which I can't really do. Right. So I'm sitting here thinking about this, like, okay, how would Elixir do it? Because in Elixir, it, it or with Ecto, it worked really well. It was already configured for me. So what can I steal? Um, so there are a couple of different ways I started looking at it. Like instead of just having this global setup and teardown thing, um, I don't necessarily want that to happen every time, regardless of tests are running. Like if I'm running a subset of tests that don't need the database, like that shouldn't have to happen every time. Uh, so I remember Phoenix has like a con case, a data case. So data case doesn't necessarily consider it's like, doesn't know anything about like the connection or the endpoint. Right. So yeah, I, I'm working on right now, basically a, a utility where you can import a function for data case or whatever. If you need the database, import that and run it. That is what handles setting up and injecting globally. So you can reuse it later and all that stuff. But you know, if I were just using Elixir, like if I were using Phoenix, I wouldn't have to do any of this. That's what's always in the back of my mind. Like, why am I doing this? (laughs) why am I doing this? The JavaScript story. Don't get me wrong. It's a fun exercise. I'm learning, which is good. That's kind of the point, right? But uh, yeah, so. So I'm I'm looking at Phoenix's default data case and it says, it has this uh, setup hook similar to what you described earlier and it has Ecto Adapter SQL Sandbox Checkout. So um, have you looked into what this checkout thing is doing and how it works? Because I think that's going to be your big win in terms of in terms of performance improvements on those tests. I haven't. Okay. My guess is it has something to do with the uh, transactions. Like you basically set up some big transaction and then you run your test. And then at the end, you just basically roll back the transaction. And that's a way to sort of get away with, uh, you know, having a clean slate for the database every time, but not having to deal with all these multiple schemas and stuff. So I would dig into that and see how that works because I think that's going to be a big win. And the, the downside is that you 
you don't get uh, concurrency, right? Like you can only run one data test at any given moment mm -hmm. because the database is, you know, in a certain state. It's in a transaction, right? And you can only have, you know, your tables are locked and whatever. So, yep. but I don't, I, it's, it's got to be faster than whatever you're doing. Right <laughs> yeah, now. yeah. I mean, it's fine. Like sitting here, this not this is not a business thing I'm making, so it's not of the utmost importance. But yeah, it's interesting. It's good to learn. I guess that's why I keep pushing myself into this through that feeling of this is dumb. Why am I doing this? I'm learning. So like you're already telling me, go source diving. That's something I want to do more. Is go source diving. That was one thing that always inspired me about Jaggy when we were working together. Is he'd message me on a Monday like, yeah. So I went source diving and I figured out how the entire like bus system works for Laravel. And so I fixed this bug we had over here. I was like, what? <laughs> I love doing that. Yeah, I need to do it more. So set transaction isolation level and then blank some level of isolation that's that's my that's my clue to you to go down that rabbit hole set transaction isolation level so so basically um i'm just trying to add tools into the toolbox you know licks into the the guitar's repertoire so to speak that's really what i'm working on here i like it i mean it's it's nice that you get to learn a lot in this process but it also kind of sucks that you just don't get that kind of stuff out of the box you know yeah yeah i mean also it also could be advantageous as well like i could set up some sort of boilerplate and use it at work or use it wherever like to make money right that's the end that's one of the big things about programming is you can make money pretty easily doing it so you know <laughs> there's ways to sort of monetize these things i guess whether it's even if it's just like oh this guy knows what he's talking about you know increasing whatever which is a dumb way to think about it but there's lots of easy ways to make money, Sean. It's just what you're willing to do. Almost anything. Writing JavaScript, that's pretty low. It's not a lot lower than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I guess the silver lining for that project has been fun because Nabil and I have a shared learning uh, journal. So it's fun to like look at what he's figuring out and struggling with. That's yeah, cool. I like that. And then he'll like, I'll post a, a thing. So I just wrote a bunch about testing and he started commenting on stuff like, why, 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 why? Like, that's cool yeah. that kind of asynchronous learning classroom it's working pretty well i like it it's all a notion i assume it'd be cool yeah it'd be cool if we could ditch stand-ups i don't think that's gonna happen <laughs> just in general yeah just yeah because i have a stand-up every day mm. 9 30 a.m but you're sitting down for it uh sometimes depends on where your desk is yeah depends on how tired i am and the whole point of a stand-up is that you're standing, so it's supposed to be short, right? Like, people get tired of standing. But you can't do that if you're working from home. You can't enforce that. That is true. Hmm. So the clients I'm working with now, they're really fun. It's actually fun to work with them. But uh, every meeting begins with story time. Every meeting. Oh, okay. It kind of loses the novelty, huh? Well, no, it's hilarious every time. Oh, okay, okay. That's good. They're sort of like... <laughs> OG computer people, it feels like the kind that like grew up with the. There's a picture of them somewhere. Like there's that thing that went on around on Twitter. Like every millennial has a picture like this, and they're sitting in front of this like CRT monitor and stuff. Yep, I have that picture. I do too. As I do as well. Um, the replies to that tweet were wild, but uh, I imagine that all these clients, the clients that I'm working with, they all have like a bunch of those. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah so they all have, like they're all like just super self-deprecating very sarcastic with each other but like kind to us very kind to us so they're always just like making fun of each other but like hey we're really happy with the work you're doing by the way on like all the meetings which is cool to hear 
but after they just got like done dragging the API guy through the mud. (laughs) (laughs) It does sound like fun. You're not going to get all clients like that. Well, we had a new contractor dev start today because there are other contractor that was working with us. His contract ended. Uh, It's actually cool. He has a side project doing machine learning and they have enough work now that he's doing that full time. But anyway, the new contractor messaged me on Slack during the stand up. He was like, this is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like fun. What were we talking about? (sighs) Who knows anymore, man? Making your own conventions. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to dig into. And I'm already like, I've been talking with a friend of the show, Kid Queb, because he's doing something similar and like sharing information with him. Like, oh, here's how I did that. Because uh, he's been wanting to break into testing and he just hasn't feel productive when he does it. And so I'm trying to give him some tips. And we're both using uh, Fastify and, and uh, Prisma. So. so anyway, we got a little uh, sidetracked there. I just want to wrap kind of close the thread on the rails discussion what i ended up replacing trailblazer with and so uh basically what i ended up doing is uh similar to what phoenix does uh phoenix has the concept of you know context is a module that has a bunch of functions and they're kind of domain oriented right so all those bag of functions are all related to the same sort of part of your business and so basically i just did the same thing with ruby except with classes i call them service classes you know uh whatever service and then uh i instantiate the service class or object uh at the, when the controller is uh instantiated you know when the action comes in and then i just use the thing and call the functions and it's fine there's there's very little implicit state you know that right now my only state that's in that service class is just who's the current user right are you authenticated here's who you are uh everything else is is just you know more or less uh just plain old function method calls and um that seems to be working fine. You know, there's still this kind of, you have to blur the line because you still have to pass active records back and like the form generators have to know about active records. So like you're still kind of violating that boundary in the sense that like, you know, your, your data layer is leaking into your front end. But like, again, that's the Rails way. And so why fight the convention? It's fine for, for most cases. And if I need to build special active model objects to represent stuff, uh, I'll do that if if the need calls for it. So. Uh, service classes, basically one-to-one right now between my controllers and my service classes, right? Just wrapping up that business logic into little plain old classes and um, Poro, plain old Ruby objects. I'm pretty happy with that. I know where to find things. I know the entry points of things. It's easy to figure out, you know, where a particular... It's easy to, like, find and replace or, you know, figure out where a particular piece of business logic is referenced because... It's it's easy to find that object and where it's been instantiated and stuff using global find. So that's uh that's where I'm ending up. That's where I'm going towards. And uh, you know, it, it is a little bit roll your own, but also it's probably like a dozen or two lines of, you know, magic code sprinkled in there to get all the stuff instantiated and wired up. And uh I don't make it too magic, you know, at the top of the controller I say explicitly, like, hey, these are the services that I'm using. This is the variable name. This is the class that it instantiates. So like you can, you, there, there's a thread to follow back there. So, right. Uh, so much in Rails is magical and you just have to know the conventions. This, I wanted to be a little bit more explicit, like, hey, this is, uh, this is exactly where this thing is defined. So yeah, service classes. I don't know if that's a real thing, but that's what I'm calling it. Seems to be working so far and, uh, and I'm happy with that. And I can't wait to delete the last Trailblazer <laughs> 
operation out of my project. But it feels good. Yeah. It's actually funny because a bunch of the stuff that's in there that's all Trailblazer stuff, it all has to do with billing. And since I'm changing all that anyways, like I'm just going to leave it. And then once I move everything over, you know, make all the new stuff, then I'm just going to delete it wholesale and it'll all be good. It'll feel really good, I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little catharsis. Yeah. But enough about Rails. Tell me about TypeScript. You probably don't need it unless you're building a utility that other people will use. <laughs> or you have lots of developers <laughs> building the thing that you're working on. I, I do have a theory that I, I've mentioned on the show bef- before that once a project reaches a certain size, and by size I mean a uh, number of developers working on it, there's a relationship there between you know the more people you have on it, on a project, the more useful types will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that I think that's a correlation. I think there is a correlation. Yeah, it, you know, obviously types are there for a reason to, you know, help your project be type safe, help you, help you not make those mistakes. Basically, you know, type script is running and making sure that things are happening the way they should be. You're not doing anything that shouldn't be happening. Um, but also, I think there's a lot to be said in in type systems for enforcing uh, some level of red tape into the project, right? Whether that's like styling or by styling, I mean like code style, like, you know, um, organization or whatever. I think it also helps in that regard too. Can, maybe not always, but it can. So are you finding that it's, what's, uh, what's the downside? Like what are, what are the negative aspects of it that you're running into? Is it, is it boilerplate? Is it just, uh, you're you're it's not flexible enough is it like uh i don't know getting enough people on board like what's what's the actual problem because it seems like a net win you know you get type safety you get lots of compile time checks uh you know you have all these these conventions and things worked out for you already so you don't have to worry about null reference exceptions like or, or any kind of other error like that like what what uh why are you kind of lukewarm on it now um, well, I wouldn't say I'm lukewarm. I, I, I do like it. So yeah, when I say uh, you probably don't need it, what I mean is you probably don't need it. I don't mean <laughs> I, I I don't mean that you you it's not good to to use it. I don't mean that it's not effective or a bonus to use it. Right? It's not helpful to use it. What I mean is you don't. It's not required. And I think that it's easy to feel like you have to do everything in TypeScript. Like the community is like. It's just going that way. It's a flood, right? Boom. All these all these dependencies are TypeScript related. And that's great. But I think like you could write a good web app with JS. You could produce a good product with it just fine. You might have more runtime errors, you know, but if that doesn't matter to your business, then who cares? Uh, as long as your business and your customers are happy at the end of the day, right? So when I say you don't mean it, you need it. I mean, you don't like, it's not required. You don't have to use it. Um and when you when you mention like is it not flexible enough? Does it introduce too much red tape? Um, no and no. Uh, what's really interesting about TypeScript that I think that you may not get in other languages is that the thing will still compile if it doesn't type check. You know, <laughs> so that that's that's one thing. Like you, you might want not want to ship that, but it you, technically you could. You know, um, so what I mean to say is it's less rigid maybe than than other languages that are that are structurally typed like TypeScript is. The other thing is that uh, you could allow JS. So for example, with this testing setup, I was having trouble 
doing some of this configuration with Jest. And so instead of banging my hand against the wall, trying to get it to work with TypeScript, all I did was switch the file to a JavaScript file. And we're good to go, you know, and just th- throw it to do in there. Like, all right, like uh... look at, look at moving this to TypeScript, but this is a developer only thing. It doesn't get to u- be used in the actual application. So you can get away with it pretty realistic, reliably. But it's a test though. Like <laughs> you'd think you'd want that to be close to production. Uh, it's not a test. It's, it's, it's configuration for Jest. Oh, I see. Okay. So instead of, it's not a TypeScript issue. It's a, uh, adoption in configuration issue in, in the thing that you're using. So what I'm getting at is that the nice thing is that if you have trouble or something that you have to use, isn't super friendly with TypeScript yet, you can bail out and still be productive, still move on and, and go back and fix it later if you, if you need to. Yeah, I don't know. That that feels like technical debt to me. Like just instantly changing the file name and just going ahead. Again, I, I haven't worked with TypeScript, so I don't actually have the experience there, but it might feel like technical debt. Uh, but I think that there's there's in in that case it allows me to continue working and and, and ship something. There's always gonna be technical debt no matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So on on the scheme of technical debt, I think that's much more approachable than than other things you could be doing. So yeah, you totally could use any, right? Like, oh, I don't want to deal with actually typing this slap any on it. That's bad. Like, don't do that. That's definitely technical debt. Gotcha, gotcha. But okay. using AllowJS allows you to deal with the deal with the ecosystem things. And I think that's where a lot of the sharp edges are, are ecosystem things. So for example, if you wanna say you're doing TypeScript, um you start having to do like, okay, well, TS node dev. Okay. So you have to find a specific utility that handles converting your TypeScript to JS and then running that for you. Otherwise you have to bundle like a chain together, right? Then you start looking at adding ingest. Then you have to use TS jest, which is different because it handles converting your TS to JS first, right? And then, so that's what I mean is like, it adds a lot of boilerplate. It adds a lot of things you have to do first before you can just get to writing TypeScript, so, so yeah, I don't, you don't need to use that required. Um, but, uh, I, it's not, it doesn't make things too rigid. Like you can type yourself into a, into a corner. Sure. You could do that with any language probably, but, um, you know, TypeScript allows you to kind of like do just enough, right? Anything is incrementally, anything incrementally better than JS would be better than JS, right? So TypeScript lets you do that however you can realistically to get to production. Is TypeScript just going to be the next CoffeeScript? Uh, probably not because, you know, while TypeScript does compile into to, to JS, it adds way more, I think, than TypeScript. Uh, or TypeScript adds way more, I think, than CoffeeScript does. CoffeeScript added a few features, but it feels like a different. There's a different purpose for it. That's what I, in my mind, that's what it is. Okay, I mean that's fair. It's kind of apples and oranges because I hadn't thought about CoffeeScript again until I started wholesale deleting uh, entire directories <laughs> out of my Rails app, and I found a couple .coffee files in there, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, that was a thing. Right. Yeah, I, I think. Um, what did JS have to implement to make CoffeeScript quote unquote obsolete, right? Error functions. Okay. That was it. Could could JavaScript wholesale implement a structural typing? 
uh yeah never gonna happen right yeah so that's 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 where i'm getting my answer from is like what js or you know every vendor shipping a runtime for js would have to implement would uh it would just never happen i'd rather just you know write something that compiles to wasm and just be done with it you know that's where everything's going in my opinion anyway but uh yeah, yeah. probably yeah and, until we get until we get WebAssembly running uh on a server that'll be the day yeah, what's interesting is Dino. I wonder if Dino is actually... I was talking to some people this week about Dino, and they think that it's going to eclipse Node actually pretty quickly. Hmm. Quickly being a relative term, but they think that it's definitely going to be... Like, not next week, you know, but... Well, I mean, the the timelines for these things keep accelerating, so, yeah. you know, divide by two, right? How long did it take Node to to come to, to get the majority? Uh, divide that timeline by two and... You get Dino, I guess. Yeah. And then with Dino, you don't have to use TS Jest and TS Node Dev. And you know, you throw all that boilerplate out the window and then you're just writing CoffeeScript. Maybe I should just in, embrace Dino right now. You're over here using bleeding edge JavaScript technologies. I'm over here on Rails 4. <laughs> <sighs> They're both uh, accessible just the same. But anyway, like Rockwell asked some interesting questions. I'm interesting to hear. I'm interested. I would be interested to hear what other people think about that. Like, think TypeScript will ever become obsolete? Like, do you think it could be, you know, replaced by something more native, by browser vendors, or think it's here to stay? If I had the answer, uh, I wouldn't be talking to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be on your own island. Yep, I'd be on my own island, quarantined, humbly celebrating my birthday. You can send us your feedback on Twitter if you want to go on Twitter. DNC Cast is our account. Sean is Sean Washbot. He may or may not be a robot, as yet to be determined. And I'm Shrockwell with a C. You know where it goes. Uh, show notes, as always, will be on dnc.show. So if we mention anything today, I rattled off a bunch of different testing frameworks. We're going to link all of those in the show notes at dnc.show. It's just a bunch of garbage words, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we're also streaming on Twitch every Thursday night, recording the show live. DNC, nope. Twitch.tv slash DNC cast, 6 Pacific, 9 Eastern, Thursday nights. Come join us in the chat. Say hi. See live Watson being petted right now. You're missing it if you're listening to this. It's too late. Watson's already received the pets. <laughs> you have to join on Twitch to see the pets. Pets of the show. Uh, last, I think we're here, last but not least. Oh, well, we have a Discord um, where we talk about coding, and we basically just rubber duck at each other. So I'll just DM Rockwell until he tells me to stop, and then I've solved my problem. Uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in looking for a community to join, of people that are you know just wanting to make cool stuff, wanting to learn, wanting to help each other out, um, I'll just pop the Discord invite into the show notes. And now, last but not least, thanks to Spec for having us and putting us out in the world. And if you're into other design development related shows, head over to respect.fm and check them out. If you need me, I will be riding my longboard and Watson will be Rudolph. He loves it. It's his favorite thing. It's his favorite thing. When I grab my longboard, when I pick it up, he starts like running around and jumping. When we get to the part where we ride, he starts whining a little bit. Like he's like, I want to run, I want to run. And then I get on and he bolts and it's wild. You don't even need to get him like the little like stick that dangles the treat in front of him no he just runs yeah good boy full tilt good boy well all right man uh have a good weekend and i'll talk to you next week see ya
Jamstack, Java, ActionScript, MongoDB. Could I could I think of a worse stack? Thank you, Thomas, for that. Uh, this will haunt my dreams tonight. <laughs>